I'm Daria Rose, and this is The Foodist Podcast, where real people use real food to get healthy and lose weight without dieting. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose, and I have an amazing episode for you guys today. Uh, It's a little long, but it's really profound, and we have an amazing conversation, so I I think it's worth listening to the whole thing. Um, Today, I'm talking to a longtime Summer Tomato reader and success story, Rashonda. So Rashonda's, I've been following her progress for many years because she was a, she did Foodist Kitchen and she did the Mindful Meal Challenge. And so I, I've watched her learn how to cook and, um, and make all these health style changes. But I only recently found out that she overcame, uh, within the last year, she overcame binge eating. And I asked her to come on the show and share how she did that because I know it's a very, very common problem, especially with former dieters since dieting pretty much causes binge eating. Um, but there's a lot of other factors as well. And Rashonda is such a deep thinker about these things. And she understood fairly early on that all these issues, you know, that she needed to overcome, um, binging was one of them, but also just learning to cook and dealing with stress from her job and, and all this stuff, her health style habits, her taking care of herself starts in the mind, you know, starts with psychology. And she just takes me through how she has systematically addressed her psychology in all these different areas of life and overcame them by doing that. And there's so much wisdom here, like so many insights about, you know, how to change your habits, how to recognize how to do that. Cause it's like, it's, you know, it's one thing to want to change a habit. It's a completely different thing to recognize what's actually going on and how to influence it and how to, how to develop that self-awareness, how to focus on the right things, how to be patient and accepting of yourself when things don't move quickly. And, you know, when it's time to draw the line in the sand, when, um, for instance, she ha- she starts out, but she, she explains how she had a very difficult job, and that was one of the reasons that the binging started in the first place. It was stress related, and you know, at some point, she realized that she shouldn't have that job anymore because it was not healthy for her. And that's a that's a profound thing to do as well. Like every step of the way here is so deep. So this is a really profound, like I said, and and intense conversation. But there's a lot to learn, and I think you're really going to love it. So give it a listen and enjoy. Hey, Rashonda, welcome to the show. Hello, Daria. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So you are, um, I've, I've like kind of been following your progress for a really long time because uh, you've been in the Foodist Kitchen program and you're in the Mindful Meal Challenge. And the other day, you made a very interesting comment on Facebook uh, to a reader or a reader slash other mindful challenge participants who was struggling with binge eating. And actually, there's a lot of people in the Mindful Meal Challenge struggling with binge eating and they're trying to use mindfulness to overcome that. And they've kind of like branched off into their own little group, which is super cool. But you had some great insight and you said you've overcome this yourself. And so I invited you here to tell me how you did that. Cause that's like amazing. And I know that everyone's story is a little different, but this is like the crux of so many people's struggle. And I would just love to hear how you did it. Well, um, I so appreciate this opportunity because I have been burning with desire to (laughs) say this to more people, um, because I feel so strongly about, um, the way that I would manage to overcome it. And, um, just going back, like, I guess just to give people, um, some background and to convey that, you know, if you're struggling with binging right now, if you feel like it is a struggle that you just cannot overcome, like I have been there and it is just such an overwhelming and it's such a heavy feeling. It's it's a feeling that you can 
you can really feel like you're under the weight of it, you know, in so many ways. Right. It's because you feel out of control and also you feel so much like shame around it. Yes, exactly. So there was a very definitive moment for me, actually, when I um, that I can remember is when I started using food for comfort. Hmm. And um, it was back in 2009 and I was uh, teaching full time. It was my first full time teaching job in um, a really tough school. So I was struggling and I was under a lot of stress and it had gotten to the point where I just, you know, I felt very overwhelmed. I felt like I didn't know how to handle what was happening. I didn't know how to handle the stress. Mm -hmm. And what I ended up doing was I remember so vividly, um, going, I had this extended break, which teachers don't usually get. (laughs) Usually only have like a half an hour. Um, but I had a half an hour on top of my planning period. So I, I left thinking, okay, I'll just take a drive, but I don't remember how, but somehow I wound up at McDonald's <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, growing up, um, we didn't really have a lot of fast food around. We, my mom cooked, um, the majority of my life. So I was very used to, you know, home-cooked meals. And um, so I can't tell you why I wound up at McDonald's, but I did. And I remember, like, gorging myself. And, you know, it felt, like, better Hmm. (laughs) for that moment. And When I was a kid, McDonald's felt like, because my mom was the same way. Like, she was like, that's poison. And she just always (laughs) cooked. But, like, she would let me have it every once in a while, like, so I'd like get it on my birthday or something like that just because I just wanted to be like all the cool kids who got to eat out. Right. And um, so for me in my brain, like I, I don't necessarily think I even liked the food. I don't remember really what it tasted like when I was 10 or whatever, but it was, it felt like a treat just because it was such a rare thing. And my parents sort of used yeah. it as a treat, like as a reward in some Yeah. Ways. Same here. Same here. It definitely was that. And we had a large family and, they couldn't take us out that often. And when we did go out, McDonald's was right in budget, you know, because <laughs> right. there, were, there were six of us. So, yeah, it definitely was that for me, too. Um, so I, I this became a habit very, very quickly because, um, you know, I've been reading a lot and learning about how, you know, there's you know more about it than me, for sure. But um, when things are so, shall I say, emotionally loaded, um, something that you use to comfort yourself in that moment can easily like almost instantaneously turn into a habit. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what happened with me. Um, although I think there were signs earlier on, too. But I definitely developed a habit that in 2009 with just going on that break, specifically going most of the time to a McDonald's or something like that and just gorging myself. And eventually this became something that I was aware of because at first I was doing it unconsciously. So once I became aware of it, you know, I started, that's when dieting started for me. Um, it wasn't something that was part of my childhood and growing up, but, um, it started as a result of all of these binges that I was going on. So how long were you So you, after, so in 2009, you had this first sort of binge episode and how long were you doing it before you were decided that you should diet? It's like, had you been gaining weight and how long had that been going on? Yeah, I want to say it'd been going on. I gained weight very quickly because I don't process food. McDonald's had just, (laughs) you know, um, so it was within a year, um, that I noticed myself gaining weight and I started, um, dieting. And I don't know if I can say this or not, but it was, uh, I started doing Weight Watchers. Is that okay to say? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, I started doing Weight Watchers and, um, that was like one of the first diets I tried and I didn't even do a whole lot of dieting from then on, but, um, because I did have this sense about me where I don't know if I got it from my mom or what, but. I didn't understand to a certain extent that dieting wasn't the way, Mm -hmm. but um, somehow I felt like Weight Watchers was a little different, you know, like they kind of pitched teaching you how to eat right. And so it felt like that one was okay. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't end up working out for me um, in the long run, but so that's where things kind of started. And 
um, if I kind of fast forward to about 2011, I think, I kind of abandoned that. And um, about 2012, I think, is when I thought, okay, um, I'm just going to have to try something different. 2011, 2012, I got a hold of the four-hour body and like um, fell into the slow-carb diet approach and really loved that, actually. Um, But I realized that um, whenever I would go back to teaching and the emotional stress would come back, I could not maintain that. Interesting. So you had an interesting situation in that you, because you're a teacher, you had breaks, right? Like you had summer. And so that was when you were like, oh, I can get this under control. So you had this very unique perspective because most people just work on their jobs all day or like, and there's no breaks. And so they can't necessarily identify, yes, it's absolutely my job causing stress and making me do this. But you were able to do that because of your sort of unique, sort of unique circumstance of being a teacher. Right. And you know, that's something I hadn't pinpointed before. So thank you for saying that, but that's absolutely true. And so I think what happened was, um, and I eventually, uh, left teaching because the stress was too much for me, but my final year of teaching or my final teaching job, I should say, because I was there for two years, I ended up taking myself out of this low carb approach. It wasn't that something that like failed and then I stopped doing it. It was something that I saw, I foresaw wouldn't last. Because you just couldn't maintain it in that environment. Exactly. Okay. So I, I intentionally said, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing this because I don't want to end up in a situation where I end up, you know, triple gaining back my weight or something like that. And so I kind of like transitioned into, um, something similar to what I learned from you. Um, but it was under the watchful eye of a a body coach, shall we say. (laughs) And that quickly, um, I abandoned that quickly because I felt, I started feeling a lot of shame and guilt about not being able to, um, you know, deliver. I felt like it wasn't a judgment situation at all, but that's how I felt. And I felt like, okay, I keep overeating and binging when I get, you know, stressed out. And then I have to report that to a person. Mm-hmm. And I felt, you know, I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to do that. So right. it added an extra should. Exactly. So, um, I, by this point I had been reading your blog and when I tell you that saved my life, Daria, I am not joking at all. <laughs> um, in so many ways, um, first of all, I learned what I'm sure, you know, everyone who's listening right now will be familiar with is um, what you call the health style. And so I started um, developing home court habits, as you would say, that immediately helped me in so many ways. The top way being my psychology, Hmm. because like going back to binging, once I had those habits in place and I saw myself daily eating vegetables, um, daily trying to, um, you know, treat my body well, trying to just, um, have all of these smaller components that added up to something bigger. Um, like when I had that in mind, if I knew that, like if I ate a brownie one day, I knew it wasn't as big of a deal because, I knew that, you know, I was eating vegetables most of the week. Isn't that liberating? Um, It is so liberating, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so that was the first thing. And um, one thing about binging is that um, I realized I had to do a lot of work around identifying the types of binges that there were, because there were binges that were the result of not eating enough satisfying foods Mm. during the day. Mm. So that's something that developed post-stress binging. Exactly. From like maybe from dieting. Yeah, maybe from dieting. Um, probably, yeah, most definitely. Actually, the more I think about it, from dieting. Yeah. So not eating enough satisfying foods were was causing this other component, and so that got under control really naturally using your methods. And then what happened was I got to a certain point and I realized, you know what? I've been really working on these habits. I've been cooking consistently for a year. 
Um, I've been going to the farmer's market for over a year. You know, I've been doing all these things and I've seen all these magnificent changes in my life. And one day it occurred to me, I'm not losing as much weight as you would think I would be losing. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that this occurred to me in this way. It was not in a panic. It was not in, you know, oh my God, why am I not losing so much weight? It wasn't like that. It was just an observation. Hmm. And it, the reason it was just an observation is because of um, this other thing that I kind of had slowly been developing, which was a result of coming uh, across Brene Brown's work, mm-hmm. which, again, you led me to Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. I love her. So how long you were, you, you started slowly changing your health style. Like what, can you tell me a little bit more about what that looked like? Sure. I started off with um, a tiny habit, which was um, waking up and going to the farmer's market on Saturdays. Awesome. And that, yeah, that might sound like a large habit, but (laughs) for me, it was, um, it was the first step. Sounds like a lovely habit to me. Yeah. And we're really, I'm from New Orleans and I don't know if people know this, but we actually have um, a really awesome culture around uh, farmer's markets now. So, you know, there's a couple of open air markets and I also combine it with hanging out with my family on Saturday. So it's a really nice time. I started off with that and that was the only goal I had for a really, really long time. And on top of that, I added, okay, well, you know, I've got this farmer's market habit. I'm going to start using what I get from there at least one or two times a week. But very so you were quick, just going and not buying stuff? Well, I would I think I did start with just going, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. It is such a lovely place to be. I know. <laughs> and I just I had that idea of getting the ball rolling and I really didn't want to make myself overwhelmed. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So <laughs> but shortly thereafter I think I wound up joining your course. It was about almost Two years to the day that I joined Foodist Kitchen. It was in 2015. It was April. I know that mid-April. So I joined Foodist Kitchen, and um, that was um, more reinforcement of building up these tiny habits. And um, you know, I remember starting off with putting a knife on the cutting board. I think that was your suggestion when I got home. And you know. I was teaching at this time. I was still under a lot of stress. Um, the stress in my life led me down a very dark path at that time, to be honest. And this habit was still being built in the background. Like despite all of the things that were happening, despite all of my emotional turmoil, despite still coming home and binging on foods that I, I knew wouldn't make me feel good. And knowing that I would wake up feeling sick sometimes because I had gone and eaten, you know, greasy chicken fingers and fries after uh, getting off from work. But still, I would come home and put the knife on the cutting board, you know. (laughs) And like, so all these habits were still building. Um, So it's kind of like when I think back to that, it almost seems contradictory, but it it worked. Amazing. Yeah. Um, So I developed the cooking habit was I think cooking was my first really strong habit that I had in place. Okay. And that helped me have um, a better psychological mindset around, like I said, you know, when, when I wasn't perfect, I knew it's okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause it's such a good foundation. Like a lot of the time when, you know, people, when you just like, when people just start dieting and they think, Oh, I need to cut out a bunch of stuff. Like that's usually the, sort of non, like not a conscious thing they think, but it, but it's sort of the way they act when they decide to diet. It's, it makes it tough if you don't have something to rely on, like cooking to actually feed you. Cause then the answer is just kind of buy different stuff, but like what exactly, you know, it's like, if you're still relying on eating out a lot. Right. Exactly. So you had that. That's cool. And it's crazy that you just were able to sort of build that up in the background. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that speaks to a huge takeaway that I have um, just from 
going through this whole process and others when I've been trying to change certain behaviors in my life. And what I've realized is that I always need to have urgency around whatever habit I know will support my larger outcome. Mm. The urgency can't be around the outcome because what happens is I get impatient about the outcome and I'm really pushing that outcome farther and farther away by grasping at it. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) This is huge because I can't tell you how many people I talk to where like that's their main problem is that they like, and and, like, I'm the exact same way. And this is what I try to tell people, like focus on the behaviors. Like if you're focused on the outcomes, you've already lost because you're not motivated properly. But if you focus on the behavior, it's immediate, it's easy to succeed. You know, it's like you, it's like you, it puts you in a very place of power and, and more important, like you said, like when you, are focused on the outcome, it sort of, it undoes your ability to do the behavior. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, so it's like self-sabotaging and, and, you know, it's it's like what undoes, 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 (laughs) (laughs) what undoes, uh, so much of the the work I do with clients is their impatience. Mm -hmm. And it's because, that makes them believe that, oh, well, I, even though I've started working out, I've started eating more veggies, you know, I've whatever they'll, I still need to restrict. Like they'll still feel like they need to do that. And then sure enough, three weeks later, I hear about a binge. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you know, but I guess the, that is so true. Oh my gosh. And I think I heard somebody say, I don't know if this is the saying, it's the the long way is the shortcut or something like that. Yeah. It's like I, I noticed that when I created urgency around making sure that the habits were in place and thinking about, okay, I I fell off track. What is the one tiny thing I can do right now to get back into my habit, you know, get back on my feet really quickly? Because I know I, you know, these are the behaviors that I want to be seeing every day. Can you give me an example? Cause that's really powerful. Um, okay. So let's take a, a binge. For example, if I find myself binging for whatever reason, I immediately go into self-reflection and I'll ask myself, well, you know, why did this happen? <laughs> what am I feeling right now? Hopefully, um, by at this point in my journey, hopefully I've, uh, I'm not just I'm binging without having already thought through that. Sometimes um, I'll catch myself and I'll think, okay, why do, why am I craving chicken fingers right now? You know? Um, And it might get to a point maybe where I think, uh, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and have the chicken fingers for whatever reason. They're still on my mind. I'm going to have them, you know, I'm going to figure out what's going on, but um, I'm going to have them. I'm letting myself have them. Mm -hmm. Well, then I go back and I reflect on my day often And I ask myself a series of questions every day. Um, I borrowed this from Marshall Goldsmith. Um, He has a book called Triggers, which um, is great for behavioral change. And he asks himself daily questions. And so one of my questions has to do with um, whether or not I've um, allowed my, given myself beneficial and delicious food choices during the day. And that kind of helps me clue in with myself and figure out, you know, what might have happened And so if I identify that there's something, there's a behavior that I didn't do, then I can go back and figure out what were the dominoes that fell that led to that. So if I didn't cook, for example, then I can backtrack and figure out, well, why didn't I cook? Is it because, you know, there were, there was nothing in the refrigerator? Is it because I didn't prep the vegetables? Is it because, you know, I just, I ate broccoli four days in a row and I don't feel like eating broccoli anymore. You know, I just have to go through that process. That is so huge. So I want to pause here and just tell you, or not <laughs> tell everybody that, um, that this is actually a, a, an incredible skill that you have. And it's really cool. Like I'm, I'm totally going to read that book cause I've never read it before, but so often if somebody doesn't do some behavior that they've told themselves they should be doing, I mean, or decided that they need to do, if they don't do it for some reason, 
they feel like a failure and just stop there and just feel bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead of asking, instead of being like, I'm human, I do things for reasons that I'm not always aware of. I wasn't just weak, you know, because 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 what it feels like when you don't do something is, gosh, I'm tired. Gosh, I don't want to. You have a little argument in your head and then the lazy part wins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you feel like crap. Right. But the, the, and, and so, and then you feel like crap, but also you blame yourself because you felt like you had the power to make the right decision, but really you hadn't set yourself up for making the right decision. And so to be able to pause and say, I'm human, humans sometimes plan things that don't work out, but like, what's the real cause? Like, why didn't I feel like it? Mm-hmm. Like, why was I too tired? Why and I've, I've you know I try to write stories like this on the blog. I, I once wrote something about how like I was like I hadn't cooked dinner for a couple times in a week, and I was really confused why. And I realized it was because specifically the butcher at my farmer's market stopped going, and I was just uninspired by the meat selection at Whole Foods. Oh, <laughs> and, isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll link to this article in the show notes, but. It was so subtle and it would have been so easy for me to, you know, just be like, oh, I'm just out of my groove or, oh, I was just being lazy. But that wasn't it. I was uninspired and I was uninspired for a very real reason. And it just, but like it wasn't conscious and it takes some digging to find that, to make it conscious and therefore enable you to do something about it. Yeah. But you know, this is just occurring to me, like what you're saying you're operating on a basic assumption that I think many, many people don't operate off of. And I hadn't um, for a long time until I think probably until I started reading your blog. And the assumption that you have is that, you know, this should be easy. <laughs> like this should be enjoyable. This should be easy. I should be loving my life. And you're you're not going to um, assume that you should just like be stricter, you know, and because you're you're not going to assume, oh, I should just be able to control myself. I should just have discipline. I should just, you know, right. beat myself into submission. Well, you're going to find another solution. You're going to find a solution that allows you to be compassionate with yourself and to um, help yourself be motivated from the inside to do the thing that's best for you. That's a really, really good point. And I, I want to emphasize that a little bit because... You're right. And I think, you know, it's ba- basically what you're saying is it comes from a place of self-confidence, you know, a place of, I, I think like where I feel like, well, I, I know I can do this. I, 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 I personally know I have the discipline because I'm a straight A student, <laughs> you know, like I'm, it's right. not like, you know, and sometimes you can look at other places in your life where you're successful. And if you're successful at anything, you have the power. It's just you haven't, for some reason, it hasn't translated to this other area. But that definitely means it's not you. Right. And yeah. And I generally assume that, like, if I really want to accomplish something, I just have to figure out how. It's not a matter of, like, mm. innate ability or whatever. It's like, if you're bad at something, you just get better at it by, like, figuring <laughs> it out. <laughs> like, And I guess, I don't know where that comes from. I Maybe from having a really hard childhood or something. You know what? I was just going to say, like, I think, you know, that's something that it sounds like you maybe take that for granted in yourself a little bit. Like, that's just something that you have and uh, maybe you don't know where it comes from. But like, for me, that is not the case at all. Hmm. Um, I've only just found that confidence. um, And the confidence really came from finding successes. You know, but before I had those successes, I did not have that confidence. I did not feel like I could achieve anything. Um, So it's really interesting. That's super interesting. That's a really good point. And I just read something the other day that really impacted me because, like, I agree. Like, well, I, I don't entirely take this for granted anymore because I, I talk to enough people that struggle with this. So I know that it is a skill I have and that I've had it since I was like a baby. But the what's really interesting is I, I read something the other day that said that you think, yeah, you're right. It's, I think self-confidence might be the wrong word because 
confidence comes with success. And, it, and most people don't really have confidence. I don't necessarily have confidence that I'm going to be good at something. Mm-hmm. I don't like the, cause confidence means I believe that I will be, and that I won't fail. And that's not how I feel. What I feel, what I, but the, the, the thing that I read, it was that said that you needed courage mm-hmm. because courage enables you to try. And in, in, if you don't try, you will never have the success. And if you don't have the success then you'll never have the confidence, but courage comes first. So I might, it might just be that like, I somehow developed courage to fail Mm. at some point. Yeah, that's really important. And it's really interesting to think about. I've never really put all this together in this way, but, um, but even more interesting. So (laughs) for me, what's even more interesting is I'm somebody who like 100% believes that all these psychological things we're talking about, they're not like... So yeah, we all have some natural gifts or whatever, but I think that they're all learnable. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying is that you learned it. Right. Absolutely. That's awesome. And yes. Mm-hmm. I totally 100% agree with you. <laughs> and that's what I want everyone to understand is that it's, it's completely learnable. And, um, you know, I'm living proof of that. I have very much learned how to change my behavior. And that was something that um, I've struggled with all my life for sure, is being able to take control and say, okay, these are the behaviors that I want to see in my life. And, you know, I know how to get them. And a lot of people say, you know, I know how to do it. I know what to do. I just don't do it. Well, now I can say, I know what I need to do. And I can say with absolute confidence that I can get myself to do those things, you know, and like, that's totally learnable, Hmm. but it takes like, so going back to something you said before, um, you mentioned the concept of patience and I, I, I would say that patience is the single biggest factor in finally making change, but it was very hard to get. (laughs) Yeah, that's. Uh, can you elaborate a little more on what you mean by patience and like what that means to you? You know, that concept of self-love that people talk about a lot, um, especially around in the health and fitness world, like that's kind of thrown around a lot, you know, love yeah. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so and, easy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Ooh, love yourself. <laughs> you and, who knows and, every and single like, flaw you have. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, how how am I supposed to do that? People don't really define what that means. So over the course of the past few years, I've been basically defining that for myself. And it's kind of this, um, if I can borrow the illustration of a the three-legged stool, like if self-love is the seat of the stool, then I've got habits, which we've talked about. And then that's one leg. And then I have two other legs, and one of them is self-compassion, and the other leg is mindfulness. Hmm. So the self-compassion, I think, is um, the leg that is the uh, that one, this illustration might not actually be the best one, so I'm going to be working on it. But <laughs> self-compassion is the the biggest, um, the strongest leg, and self-patience for Patience with myself is all wrapped up into that and entangled in that. And it comes from, this is like a really, really, really key thing for me. And I would say that, you know, when I thought about today and what I would hope that I could convey to other people, this is the thing that I hope really um, translates and really strikes people. Um, I got this concept from Brene Brown. And it's, um, it's something called critical awareness. And so I, I mentioned that with some of my binges, they were, it was the result of not eating satisfying foods. It was like depriving myself. And so I would overcompensate, but eventually I got a handle on that. And I was left with these emotional binges and the resulting self-talk was um, something that it was a cyclical thing that caused me to be to self-sabotage again and again and again. 
Because as you alluded to earlier, you know, I would binge and then I would start talking to myself like, why, why are you doing this? You know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get a control of this? Um, right. You know better. <laughs> yeah. All of these yeah. things that were just not productive at all. And it's because I was feeling not good enough. I, I felt like I I was disappointing myself. I was letting myself down. But what I realized through practicing critical awareness, which I'm just going to read this definition. It's from Brene Brown's book. I thought it was just me is the book. And she says, awareness is knowing something exists. Critical awareness is knowing why it exists, how it works, how our society is impacted by it and who benefits from it. Whoa. So why did this help me? Um, There are questions that you can ask yourself um, to practice critical awareness. So it is something that is a practice. It is something that I, I go through on an almost daily basis, especially if I feel um, bad about my body image for some reason. So the questions that you can ask are, number one, what are the uh, social community expectations around appearance? Why do these expectations exist? How do these expectations work? How is our society influenced by the expectations? And I think like the most powerful one for me is this last one, who benefits from these expectations? Yeah, that really like hits you. Yeah. When you said that the first time I was like, whoa, because like, it's like, we don't think about that when we think about our own flaws. But then we're like, who's benefiting from making me think this is a flaw? Exactly. And what happens is we end up feeling like we're, we're weird. We're not normal. Um, you know, we're the only ones <laughs> and we feel like, okay, everybody expects me to look like this and to be this way. And so in the background, that's, we're trying to hold ourselves to that expectation. So what was happening with me is sometimes, you know, I would, I would eat out of emotional stress or whatever. And then immediately I would feel ashamed of myself, not just because I overate, but because of the whole weight of all of these expectations, like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm making myself fat. I am um, not, um, I'm not thin. I'm not pretty. You know, I'm not X, Y, or Z. I'm focusing on everything that I believe I'm not. And all that whole definition is not even my own definition. That's a definition that's been created largely by the media and marketing. Right. And the more I've understood the way that marketing plays a role in so many aspects of um of our lives the more i've been trying to get power over that um because um going back to that book i told you about triggers that the whole thing is about how the environment impacts behavior and how really a lot of the things that we do the choices that we think we're making um are unconscious and it is a cause of our environment a lot of times. Right. That's what triggers are. Right. So I became just very um, acutely aware of how much marketing played a role in my self-talk, in my understanding of my self-worth. It was impacting the way that I viewed myself because I didn't think that I was good enough as I was. It sounds to me like this sort of pissed you off. It, yeah, definitely pissed me off. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, well, it's like, it's, it's interesting because what I'm hearing you say is you brought another value into this that you feel strongly about. So it was no longer just like, I want to look good. I want to eat healthy, which are all sort of self-care values. And I don't, I don't like, 
I've, I've said this before, but I'll say it again because I don't have any problem with vanity goals. I mean, I, there's no doubt in the world that we are all judged by how we look and wanting to put the best foot forward in the world opens a lot of doors. And, you know, there's plenty of valid reasons to care about how you look, but you're right. Like we get, but there's like this other like weird element of, uh, well, well I got off track. So those are self-care type goals. But what you brought in here is this idea that someone's profiting financially, <laughs> like societally, by making this a not like deeper than about you, but about like what makes you okay. And like, that is gross. Like that somebody's manipulating you to feel worse about yourself so that they can sell you crap. Exactly. And it's that's a, that's a higher value. I just, I'm just pointing this out because like when you can bring in higher values like that, that are bigger than yourself, we, we think like our own self-interest is what really motivates us, but that's not entirely true. Like we want to, we want to do things in line with the values we want to have expressed in the world. And it's super powerful. And it sounds like this really motivated you. And I just want to bring up one more example because I want to hear your thoughts on that. But one more example that. Uh, comes up, came up for me anyway, when I was doing this stuff was when I really learned, started learning about how like the industrial food system and like how animals are treated. Like I love animals and I'm not vegetarian. Like I'm not like, I don't, I understand that in nature, like there are animals that eat other animals and I am at peace with that. (laughs) But, but the way they're treated in the industrial food system is absolutely disgusting to me. And even the way vegetables and plants are treated in the industrial food system is absolutely disgusting to me. And the way humans are treated in that system is disgusting to me. So I have a visceral rejection of that. And that makes it so much easier for me to not eat at a place like McDonald's. It's like, I don't want to give them my money. Like, I don't care how it tastes. There's nothing to do with that. And I don't even care about my health. Like I would eat eat something unhealthy for me, but I'm like disgusted by the industrial food system. So that is really, really powerful motivation because it just shuts down a lot of bad behaviors. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause it's more, be- it's bigger than you. And that's, that's exactly. kind of the, it's, you know, it's, that's when you can tap into something like that. It's really, really powerful. It is. It's so powerful. It's so powerful to be able to have, um, the strong intrinsic motivation, um, because it takes, as you talk about so much, it takes the willpower, um, largely out of it. And so you can sort of relax into it a little bit more right? and, you know, live your life. Cool. So you started noticing marketing influencing how you felt about yourself and got angry mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and rejected it. Yes, exactly. But um, so something you said reminded me about um, this. Um, going back to the concept of self-love. Um, one thing that always bugged me about when people would say, love yourself, you know, have self-love, especially when people would be like, love yourself. And then you can, you know, um, you can love yourself into a fit body or whatever. Um, it didn't really jive with me because I thought, okay, if I'm supposed to accept myself as I am, how does that get me to a fit body? (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah like I don't understand (laughs) how that works (laughs) this problem comes up so much with people um I'm gonna let you finish before I I go on before I go on so how did you get out of it (laughs) because there's an answer (laughs) (laughs) um my mom would always say that love is an action word and what I um, feel that meant was that, you know, I, she can say that she loves my dad, but it's the way that she treated him on a daily basis that really showed love. I love that. Like she loved him by treating him well on a daily basis. And so what I came up with is that, you know, with self-love, I've developed a way to treat myself that shows that is me enacting self-love. And so the habits are one of those things, you know, the cooking, going to the market, Got it. um, all those things. Um, the other component, self-compassion, like having, um, practicing critical awareness to realize that, you know, I'm normal and I am enough. I'm worthy. 
Um, how I look does not determine my self-worth. And whether or not I succeed or fail, that doesn't determine my self-worth either. And then, um, and that, like I said, was the, that was the biggest part of it. But the last thing, um, I think the thing that kind of rounded everything off, once I was able to, um, oh, I kind of glossed over your original question, which was patience. Like for me, patience, having patience with myself is being kind to myself. It's understanding. It's like um, approaching myself as I would a child who's learning, you know? If a child is learning and they make a mistake, I'm not going to say, hey, um, loser. <laughs> Get out of here. You're done. <laughs> you messed up. <laughs> you know, you failed. You suck at life. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, hey, you know what? You're learning. Mm-hmm. You're growing. You tried your best. Good job. <laughs> you know, get right. up and try it again now, because that's that's what we say to, to children when they're learning. Um, so being kind to myself because I understand that, hey, I'm actually fine. Like I'm good enough. So it's like those two things working together um, is what led to me being patient with myself. And because I was patient with myself, the pressure was off. Mm -hmm. And the pressure being off helped me to be able to do all the other necessary work that was necessary to get me out of this um, cycle of self-sabotage. Wow. So uh, I actually, this this actually worked out really perfectly because one point I wanted to make to sort of wrap all this stuff up in a bow, because <laughs> that's how you wrap things up. Um, no, it was interesting because when you first said patience, I, 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 for, you know, from the the work I do and like the, the psychology stuff that I read, the, the way that's often translated into like practice like coaching and, and stuff like that is it's a practice of acceptance. And then it's funny because you actually brought up acceptance later. And actually, this is a problem that comes up a lot when I talk to people about acceptance because the question is, well, how do I get better if I, <laughs> if I just accept everything? And, right. and this is actually a really important distinction and where sort of that grace you were talking about and compassion that you're talking about comes in. Because... And I think our, our language traps us a little bit and it makes it muddled in our in our minds. But I think if we can get some clarity around it, it makes it easier. So yeah. uh, when I think about acceptance, I'm talking about accepting the present moment. And this is why mindfulness is important because mm-hmm. mindfulness can help you realize that all the stress you're feeling, it's like about the future, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're like, I'm not worthy, it's like, well, right now in this moment, there's no issue. Like you're worried you're not going to fall in love or you're worried. I don't know. You're worried about something else. Like it's a fear of something that hasn't actually happened. When you, when I talk about acceptance, I'm talking about like, just, it's not really anything except understanding that in this moment, there's only so much you can control and worrying about like spending energy on just worrying about the future and like your failings is not productive. However, that's not the same as necessarily being satisfied and wanting to stop growing. Mm-hmm. And so like, and I think the a learning child analogy is perfect because of course you accept the child where he is today. It's a child. Right. They're learning exactly like it's, it's under, it's easy to understand in that context, but when you're talking about your own psychology or learning to overcome certain behaviors that are very ingrained, it's the same thing you're learning and you have to sort of accept that you're not like there yet. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, so, but like freaking out that you're not there yet is not helpful. And I think that's the biggest difference. And so I would say there's a difference between acceptance which is positive and complacency as I'm not talking about complacency. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's like just understanding that growth is coming, but worrying about it and stressing out about it and feeling inadequate because you're not perfect today in this exact moment is counterproductive and actually prevents you from being able to do the things that will get you where you want to be. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get, I totally understand what you're saying now. And yes, I totally agree. And it's, it's so funny how words can be um, so fickle. <laughs> you know, it really did take all of that explanation to make that distinction between acceptance and complacency, because that is, that's, that's what it is. That kind of, you know, got hung up in my mind for a while. Right. Cause it's not the same as giving up. Right. Because that's yeah. what, it, that's what it, people hear for some reason. Yeah. And for me, um, I think it was taking myself as not, um, I don't know if I'm going to say this right. Cause I've never tried to put this in the words before, but, um, you know, I'm more than my body anyway, you know, I'm the me that is capable of anything that I wanted to accomplish is not my body alone. That's right. And like, I had to learn how to love myself <laughs> in a way that accepted my body, like you said, as I was, but also recognized that that wasn't all of me. Right. You're a whole person. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, you know, you bringing up mindfulness, that is the last leg of my, of my stool in my, um, in my self-love is, you know, mindfulness, because um, I feel like it goes back and forth between um, mindfulness and self-compassion. Those two things are very much um, interrelated. And because I feel like the more awareness you have, the more capable you are of being um, self-compassionate with yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the last piece of the puzzle for me where I went from, you know, binging on a like regular basis, basically, to rarely binging. And when I do, you know, it's either um, I've done something, um, I've had an off week with my habits, my health style, or, you know, maybe I've really had just a doozy of a life circumstance hit me, but then I can easily bounce back. Right. Because there's a but, reason. Um, exactly. It's not just, and, I'm a failure. Right. Um, and with mindfulness, I started practicing non-attachment and that was like, that was the last thing that just really, really, really made me feel um, in control. Can you talk about that? What do you mean by non-attachment? Oh, um, just not being attached to situations, circumstances, even people. Um, but it's a practice where, um, say if you, what I do is if I'm feeling an emotion, like say I feel lonely for some reason, I can become aware of that through mindfulness. I can become aware of the feeling of loneliness mm -hmm. and I can, um, I can talk to myself in terms of, Hey, this, you know, this is an emotion that you're experiencing. Um, but you don't have to identify with this. Hmm. And it's transient, you know, you felt lonely before, you'll probably feel lonely again at times in the future, but this is not forever. Like this moment is going to pass. Um, it's okay to feel lonely, you know, just talking to myself in those terms, like very kindly, lovingly allowing myself to feel it, but not identify with it, not take on that emotion because when I do, then that's when, you know, I, I start treating myself poorly. That's a really good point about allowing yourself to feel it versus identifying with it. Because I feel like, uh, I feel like a lot of people translate in their minds when you say don't identify with it, then the, the assumption is, well, then I should avoid it. Oh, yeah. So, and then they, they go into some sort of avoidance behavior, which is usually also not productive. Exactly. And that's what I did before. <laughs> and it, exactly. yeah, it yeah. Work. <laughs> like that, like, like that, like you go into like, I mean, people like do all sorts of bad habits, binging, drinking, gambling, sex, right. Just wallowing in a pit of despair. <laughs> Pretty also, much. All, all, all of the above. Yeah. So, um, so you're able to sit with the loneliness, acknowledge it as a transient, non-fatal, <laughs> condition yeah. that is part of the human condition. And I think that's important too, is recognizing that not just have you, you've felt this before 
you're going to feel it again, but also everyone has felt it before and everyone's going to feel it again. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, that is what um, self-compassion and empathy is really all wound up in that, you know, understanding that we're all human and connected and we all understand. We all know. (laughs) Yeah, And like, this is like, and it's easy to be like, well, it's a negative feeling. And so I don't want it. And so it's unacceptable. Sort of like, that's like an unspoken, unconscious belief that we have when we have a negative feeling. It's like, get it away, make this stop. But it's easy to forget that dark moments are just as important for as light moments for making life beautiful. And that's where art comes from. You know, it's, 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 it's our imperfect, sometimes painful, sometimes glorious lives are, they wouldn't be any of that without the full spectrum of human emotion and just rejecting half of it, (laughs) um, is, is not productive, but also just not, it's not even something you should actually want. I mean, if you, if you think about what makes life beautiful. Yeah. Getting rid of it, getting rid of all the bad things is kind of not the best goal. Yeah. But you don't want them to take you down. So, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, all the way down. <laughs> so I like your strategy <laughs> of, you know, feeling, recognizing it for what it is and just staring it in the face and being really real about where, what it means for you to feel bad right now. Right. But I, I love what you said, though. It is so true. about, you know, we, we need, it's all of it. We need all of it. And all of it is, it is beautiful. Yeah. I love, think I love that thought. Yeah. We wouldn't have the Smiths if bad things didn't happen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the happiest sad music in the world. Um, Mm. Wow. So (laughs) you have done so much work psychologically. Yeah. And can you tell me, so you started all this stuff, you said you started in like 2012 or something like that. It's now been five years and it sounds like all of this was sort of coming into place. What's been the last, what's the last phase for you looked like the the last six years, six months, one year, you know, in terms of this stuff, I don't know how to be more specific. (laughs) Uh, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I would say practicing non-attachment and well, my, let's say mindfulness overall, um, because that's something that it just supported everything else. You know, I really, I feel like it's just such a critical, um, component to a person's life really. I mean, and when did you start like really being deliberate about a mindful lifestyle? That started, (laughs) you know, going back to what you said about the bad things being part of life, um, the stress again, it was, (laughs) I had right before leaving teaching, um, the stress just got so crazy. It was around testing and I just knew I could not sustain that. Like I had to change something. And that's when I started mindfulness. I started meditating using, um, an app called Calm. Mm -hmm. And, um, so this was, uh, I started that practice about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And then recently I would say over the last six months to six to eight months, I've just kind of expanded on that. And one of the things that I expanded on was, um, to include mindful meals. Thank you, Daria. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, So it was putting, I think that last piece, putting that into place and then to kind of polish everything, just developing consistency, um, recognizing that I, I can do a lot by myself, but I can do even more with support and, you know, getting active in the foodist community. And also like, I even hired somebody to call me every day and keep me accountable for the questions I was asking myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are the things that I think really just put me over the edge, those last little finishing touches. And I have a question. Did you, 
you had tied your binge eating largely to work stress. Were you able to stop that or mitigate that? I, I kind of, I don't know if you stopped completely or what, but it doesn't really matter. But like, were you able to start getting that under control before you quit? Or was it like, I can just can't have this job and not yeah. binge because it's just too much? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, good question. I, I ended up quitting the job because I recognized that it was just simply not healthy. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I feel very strongly that we um, spend a whole lot of time thinking about managing stress and not quite enough time questioning whether or not the stress, stress is worth it. Hmm. And um, for me, I, I did ask myself that question and I realized, hey, that what, why am I doing this? You know, why am I trying to manage this? This is, this is just too much for me. Hmm. And um, so I think that needed to happen in order for me to get binging under control because I was just drowning, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so was it shortly after the, you finding a different job that you felt like you really could control the binging? Yeah. Once I changed my, my life as far as stress, once I got the stress out of my life, I was able to, I had the bandwidth to be able to address a lot of things, including binging. So um, I would say I stopped teaching in last year. So I've been not teaching since last summer. So it's almost the summer again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I would say, hmm, it, yeah, it didn't take that long after it for me to feel like I had it under control. Where one day I looked up and said, hey, you know, I haven't had that happen in a while. I think it was probably within six months. Cool. Have you noticed a big, like any, like has not binging had a big impact in your health? Yeah. Where that had the most impact was my weight for sure. Um, I started naturally losing weight, like even while I was teaching, even with binges and everything, um, just by virtue of starting cooking. Right. Real food. That makes um, sense. Yeah. I had started losing weight, um, really easily, but yeah, once I started, took away the binging, I, I instantly started dropping weight again. (laughs) And I would say since, um, since adding the non-attachment, which on, upon further reflection, I would say that started just about four months ago. And the non-attachment was like the last little, um, thing that helped me to really get it under control. And once that happened, like once I started realizing that just because I feel X doesn't mean I have to then do Y, you know, mm-hmm. um, that led to, let's see, that led to probably about another eight pound weight loss. So total, like since I've started um, like reading your blog and uh, joined the Foodist Kitchen course, I've lost like 28 pounds. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm really happy to say that I've never actually tried to lose weight, you know, (laughs) it's always been like focusing on these other things. So yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) That's really cool. And it's so funny. It's like people, so like people, Oh God, I would love to like lose 30 pounds. I'm going to focus on losing 30 pounds. It's like, no, focus on the behavior. (laughs) (laughs) It's so crazy. Like that. Oh uh, gosh. Well, wow. What a journey. And it sounds like you're still on it. Ah, and I'm loving it. And you know, it's really funny. You brought, you asked me that question and I was able to say, oh yeah, I've lost 28 pounds. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, I've like gone down several pant sizes and stuff. And it's really cool to be able to, um, now I can like, sort of hold that up and say, Hey, you know, if you want to also lose maybe 30 pounds, 
I can now um, share this really awesome story that I think is going to be way more um, meaningful. Right. You know, that led to this great result. And I don't even really care about the result. It's really funny. It is funny. You know, it, like I have, I kind of have the same story with summer tomato and, and foodist and all that, because I, I mean, my original goal was weight loss, but I had sort of thrown in the towel. I was so frustrated with how it was going. And so I started like this real food thing and I, you know, I didn't expect it to work any better than any other diet necessarily, but you know, I had my hopes up and, and then, but what was, what was crazy for me was like you're saying, like the other life changes that came about as a result of those behavior changes were so profound that by the time I like the, you know, the smoke cleared and I was like standing there 12 pounds lighter, like looking around going, what just happened? Like I didn't even care about the weight anymore at that point. I was just like, oh my God, I'm not miserable. (laughs) Right. I'm not hungry. I don't hate myself. (laughs) Like what's happening? This is so great. (laughs) Like I have a community. Like I'd never, food got me into my community. So I'd never, I always felt very isolated. I don't know. My whole life I was just very isolated, like as a kid and all through college. But when I found food, I discovered the farmer's market and the farmers and the food community in the Bay Area is so amazing. And and I started writing and I met writers and it's just like that whole thing is like such a, like all of that, like that, like the, the actual love of food, the cooking, like the friends that brings together, like my life changed so much. And the weight loss is just like, like a huge bonus. <laughs> yeah. It should, it ends up being a byproduct when yeah. you do the things that actually make that happen and permanently, I should say. Because, right. you know, but yeah, I mean, Daria, I just want to thank you. Aww. Um, I just want to, I'm glad I get to publicly thank you because it is so liberating. I feel as you feel that my life is just infinitely better and I just have, I owe a lot of that to you. So thank you. Aww. You're welcome. It makes me so happy. Um, yeah, stories like this are like yours are why I do this, but I rarely get such a in-depth and cool opportunity to talk to someone who's gone through so much. I mean, it's been years. <laughs> I yeah. feel like so gosh, that's so that's so awesome. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time.